Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. Hi, my name is Camille Yurick, and today I will be reading scripture from Acts 4, verses 23 to 31. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met today with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you've anointed. They did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your words with great boldness. Stretch out your hands to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, their place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is God's word. Thanks indeed for God's word. I want you to imagine the situation with me. Imagine a group of people maybe gathered together for a time of prayer or in a small group, in a home group. Uh, maybe in a call time of prayer and people are sharing a request. And here, here's a, a request that someone shares with me. A lady says, uh, can you just really pray for my husband? He's lost his job and without a job for eight months. He'd been to three interviews. He hasn't succeeded in any one of them. He's really discouraged. My parents would love to help us uh, financially, but he's reluctant to accept help from his in-laws. Tomorrow he's got a really important interview, and he'd really like to get this job. Can you pray for him? It's not a um, realistic request that you might say. Now, at the expense of a little bit of exaggeration, here's what a typical prayer response might look like in a prayer meeting. It might go something like this. Lord, we want to pray for John this morning. We know, you know that he's been without a job for eight months. Uh, we know that he's really discouraged. We know that he doesn't want to take any help from his in-laws. and We know that he has this really important job interview tomorrow. Please help him, we pray in Jesus' name. I said a little bit of exaggeration, but probably not too much. It's what happens in a lot of our praying. We basically inform God of the problem. Lord, you know. Just count the number of times Lord, you know shows up in a prayer meeting. Of course he knows. He doesn't need us to inform him again of the problem. What happens with this kind of praying is after a while, it's very hard to maintain any sense of enthusiasm and passion for praying like this. And so we go silent. By the way, after one person has prayed that way, what else do you say? You've already told God everything, right? So silence follows. And then your mind starts wandering. So there's either babbling or silence. We are plagued with a problem of words when we start praying. And yet, as I taught you two weeks ago, we need to pray. Because God's tied the success of every dimension of his agenda, both global and local, to our prayers. <coughs> How do we solve this problem? 
And by the way, if it was a problem with words, with some incidental relationship in our life, it's okay, you can get by it. But not when it's with the most vital relationship in our life, which is God. And it applies to, there might be some of you here who are not Christ followers. I just did a quick research on the internet yesterday. People who call themselves not affiliated with any religion, 40% of them pray at least once a month. And so it's just as relevant for you as for those of us who are Christ followers. And <clears throat> what I'd like to do this morning is to just share with you some thoughts on that scripture from that passage that was read for us that has helped me a lot in, in addressing the issue of, of solving this balance between babbling and silence and at the same time bringing delight into the discipline of prayer. About all I can do in a 40, 35, 40 minute time is to just whet your appetites and give you some lines along which to do some thinking. And I'd encourage you to keep exploring that as well. <coughs> that text began. Let me give you some background to that. Peter and John were, had accomplished an amazing miracle in Jesus' name that healed a lame man. And this had brought a huge crowd and they began to preach about Jesus. The Sanhedrin, who was the highest ruling body in the city, were absolutely mad and upset. And so they brought Peter and John in. They couldn't deny this amazing miracle that had happened. And so they basically said, you stop preaching in Jesus' name. Otherwise, you're going to face severe persecution and threat from us. Peter and John go back to the church. That's a prayer. <coughs> and this is the prayer that results and how they pray. Notice as we work our way through this, the radical difference between this and the Lord you know kind of praying that I hypothesized a few minutes ago. They begin with these words. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. The first thing they start off with is an acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God. It reminds them, of course, that God is sovereign over this situation, that even the Sanhedrin, who are their opponents, are really under the active sovereignty of God. But more than that, it is a conviction of the sovereignty of God that even allows us to pray. Some philosophical objectors say, well, if God is sovereign and he's going to accomplish what happened anyway, and we read in that text a few moments ago that even the handing over of Jesus to be crucified was according to the determined counsel and foreknowledge and plan of God. Well, if that's the case, why bother to pray? Actually, the opposite is true. Why bother to pray if God is not sovereign? You, it makes sense to ask somebody to do something if they have power to do something, right? There's no point talking to someone who's powerless about situations in your life that are beyond your control. It is, in fact, the fact that God is absolutely sovereign over every dimension of life that enables us to make sense and say, I'm going to talk to you because you can actually do something about it. And so a robust conviction about the sovereignty of God. You trace, read through the book of Acts sometimes in your Bible reading and you notice all the things that God is sovereign over. He's sovereign over leadership elections. He's sovereign over open doors and closed doors. He's sovereign over mission strategy and church planting strategy. He's sovereign over wind and weather. He's sovereign over who gets martyred and who doesn't, who gets imprisoned, who gets released. He's sovereign over every dimension of life. <clears throat> and it is that conviction of his sovereignty that allows us. He's sovereign over the fact that Vijay couldn't speak today and I'm here. He is. He's absolutely and totally sovereign. So you can rest assured that God needs, you want you to hear some things that I have to say. <coughs> but his sovereignty goes hand in hand with the fact that he's created. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth. In, 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 in Hebrew thinking, sovereignty and creation go together. God who is sovereign is also the God of creation. 
<coughs> and that is important for us because it reminds us of the fact that prayer is one of the ways in which we enter into the creativity of God. Blaise Pascal, the French Christian thinker, said this, prayer is God's means of conferring upon human beings the dignity of causality. Prayer is God's means of conferring upon ordinary human beings the dignity of causality. We actually enter into the creative work of God when we are praying. Something always happens when we pray. I remind you a couple of weeks ago when we talked about how laborers are sent, people are united on the mission field, doors are opened, people are given boldness to preach the word of God. The word of God spread rapidly. All of those things were tied to the prayers of God's people. You know, in the 35 years I was a pastor, and then longer as I'm a Christian, <coughs> there are many things I did even as a pastor. I preached, I counseled, I strategized, and I was never sure that any of them really made any difference. Often I was plagued with doubt as to their effectiveness. There is only one thing that I did, there is only one thing that I do, that I never have any doubt is actually matters. And that's when I pray. When we pray, something always happens. You can be sure of that because you are actually entering into the creative work of God. And so these are two things that at the very beginning, they're, they're short, they don't spend a lot of time on that. We're coming to the heart of the prayer in a few minutes. But it's still very important to root ourselves in these two dimensions of who God is. He is sovereign, so it makes sense to pray. And by golly, I'm involved in creating something out of nothing when I pray. Something will always happen. Nothing ever remains the same after I pray, whether you know it or not. <coughs> and then they come to the heart of the issue. From God who is sovereign and God who is creator, they move to God who is the revealer. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. This is actually a quotation from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 was written by David at a time in his life when he was under severe opposition. In fact, if you look at all the adjectives, there are six adjectives that describe the opposition that David was facing. They were numerous, they were angry, they were strategic, they were determined, they were powerful, and they were united in their opposition. That's a formidable opposition against David. <coughs> Very much like their present situation. You can see the relationship with their present situation. There are kings and there are rulers. There's the Sanhedrin, who's a powerful ruling body. They are strategic, they are united, they are determined to stamp out this new sect called Christianity. And so there's something in the life of David, in his situation, written about a thousand years before their time in their sacred history, and David's response to that, that perfectly mirrors the present situation they're in. So what they do is, they go to a situation in the past where God's word speaks in such a way that, give, that gives them perspective upon their present situation. And the two key words in this text are, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? It means it didn't happen. This massive opposition, numerous, angry, powerful, united, determined, strategic though it was, failed against David. That's what they remind themselves of and they say, well, therefore, it doesn't matter how strategic and how determined the opposition is to us, they're going to fail as well. That's why they move to this particular portion of God's word that speaks to them. And by the way, this uh, prayer opens by saying they raise their voices together. What do you think together means there? Does it mean that they all automatically, simultaneously prayed the same thing? I highly doubt that. 
Does it mean that they all prayed together whatever they wanted to? That's one of the hallmarks of the Korean prayer movement, but I don't think that's what happened because Luke would not have known what they prayed in that case. I can't prove this to you, but I guess something like this happened. This word together is a very important word in the book of Acts. It occurs 11 times, I think, in the first five chapters. It means the one mind and one spirit. In other words, before they prayed, before they prayed, they took some time to come together of one mind and one spirit and how to pray about the situation. And because these were men who were well-trained in the Psalms, I suspect maybe when they got together, they said, okay, what do we do? We've been told not to preach in Jesus' name. What do we do? And they sit together. Well, what does God's word have to say about this? And maybe one of them says, hey, doesn't this remind you of a situation in David's life? Let's turn. Of course, they didn't need to do this. It's all in here. <laughs> Psalm 2. Hey, that's, that's exactly our situation. Well, what did David do in Psalm 2? Did David count out to these people and got silent and ran in fear? No, David preached to them. David reminded himself that he was God's anointed king. That's why the rest of the Psalm 2, this only talks about the first two verses. The rest of Psalm 2 goes on to say, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He shall have them in derision. God will rule them with a rod of iron. I have installed my king in Zion. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Therefore, you kings be warned. <laughs> David reminded himself of the fact that he was God's anointed king and that his job was to preach the gospel. And so they took their cue from something that was already written in the past and it shaped their praying at this time. <clears throat> I want to park here for a few minutes because this is the heart of what makes prayer powerful. That we take time before we launch into babbling Lord you know kind of prayers to ask ourselves, what does all of God's word have to say to us about this particular situation that we find ourselves in? How have God's servants in the past prayed? What do we know about the nature of God, the purposes of God, the ways of God that are pertinent to the situation? And then we can lay a hold of him through that. And that's what it is. Lord, you spoke. You're not only sovereign. You're not only creator. You are the revealer God who has spoken to us. I want to illustrate this by one particular type of praying. And I've chosen this for several reasons. How do we pray for imprisoned Christians? Why do I choose that? First of all, it's one of the best topics in which to illustrate the breadth of how God's word can be used to pray for a particular situation. How the stories in the Bible are powerful, powerful fuel for prayer. Secondly, you are in the midst of missions month. And it's important for us to remember, my dear brothers and sisters, that 100 million Christians are persecuted Christians in this world. 100 million Christians. And approximately 1 million of them are imprisoned at any given time. 70,000 are imprisoned just in North Korea alone. And Hebrews chapter 13 says, remember those who are in prison as if you yourself were in prison. And it's important. And, and a third reason why I want to talk about this is that as I retired a year ago, I did some work on what does God want me to do at this next, next stage in my life? What are the causes that he wants me to give, my, give, give myself to? And one of them is to keep the church in North America aware of the plight of the persecuted church and to call for intercessors. There might, and I prayed this morning that there might be at least one person here today who feels a fresh call to pray for the persecuted church. So for all of those reasons, I want to use this as illustration. But, but learn the principle of how God's word can be used to pray for anything and everything that you want. So, uh, about 20, 25 years ago, I was reading a magazine. It was our Alliance denominational magazine. And I read about 17 Vietnamese past, Alliance pastors who have been imprisoned. One of them, his wife's uh, plight 
was outlined in the story, and my heart was drawn to him because I was a pastor myself, and I imagined my wife and my family in that miserable situation. And so I said, Lord, I want to pray for Pastor Ha. That was his name. Well, what do you do? What do you pray for someone who's in prison? What's the first thing you pray for people who are in prison? Lord, get them out, right? That's what I'd want. I want to get out. But how long do you pray, Lord, get them out? That takes about three seconds. And how many days do you keep praying that with any kind of enthusiasm? Around about the time I was learning some of these principles that I'm sharing with you, and I began to read through the scriptures and think through them about all the people who had been in, the, in prison in, God, in the Bible. What can I learn from their situation? Did God get them all out? No, he didn't, as a matter of fact. What did he do for them? Once I found that out, I could ask him to do that for Pastor Ha. So I thought of Joseph. When Joseph was in prison, what does the Bible say? God was with him. It didn't say God got him out. It said God was with him. So the first and most important thing I learned to pray for Pastor How was that God's spirit would be with him in a very real and tangible way. What was the result of God being with Joseph? Joseph found favor. He found favor with the jailers. So that was the next thing I began to pray for. Not only did Joseph found favor with the jailers, Joseph was given more work to do. And as a result of that, Joseph was respected in the prison. So I prayed for authority for this man. That God would be with him, he would have favor with his jailers, he would have authority. And then not only that, you remember Joseph interpreted dreams for two of Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph was given wisdom. And so I prayed that God would bring people to Pastor Ha who were in trouble and who needed wisdom. And that God would give Pastor Ha wisdom. There were at least four things from Joseph's life that I learned to pray for him. And as if that wasn't enough, I also learned not to pray for his release. Now that's the cheeky thing when you're outside of jail yourself. But if it weren't from God's word, I wouldn't have the courage to pray that way. Because Joseph was not released right away. In fact, as a result of one of these uh, dreams that he interpreted, the Pharaoh's butler, he said to him, hey, when this comes true and it's good news for you, please remember me. The butler forgot. And for two more years, Joseph was in jail until the butler then remembered. Now, why did God allow him to languish in jail for two more years? You ever ask yourself what would happen if Joseph had been released earlier? If Joseph had been released two years earlier, he would have been sent back to, to Canaan, and five years later, he would have died when the famine came. But by waiting those two years, on this particular night when Pharaoh could not interpret his dreams, and all of Egypt's magicians couldn't interpret it, at that moment, Joseph was brought to attention, and he became prime minister, and he saved his own people. He preserved Judah, from whom Jesus would come. So from that time, I began to pray, not that God release him now, but release him at the time when his release will have maximal impact for the kingdom of God. And in the meantime, Lord, please keep his spirit sweet, like you kept Joseph's spirit sweet. All that I learned to pray just from Joseph's story. That's just one story. Then I thought of Peter. Read that, read that in Acts chapter 12. Peter was, had been arrested by Herod, and he was due to be put to death the next day. But you know, he was fast asleep. He was fast asleep when the angel came to wake him up, to set him free. It literally says the angel had to kick him on the side to wake him up. How many people do you know sleep that well the night before they're supposed to be executed? So I began to pray that God would give Pastor Ha an incredible sense of sleep and comfort every night and not be worried about what was going to happen the next day to him. Then I thought of Paul and Silas in Philippians, uh, in uh, Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas were imprisoned. And you know what they did? Their feet were put in stocks. They'd been beaten. And by the way, those jails aren't like some of the jails today here. They were dank. They were dark. There were creatures running all around. And your feet were in stocks. And it says at midnight they sang. 
most of us don't sing on a Sunday morning. These people sang in the midnight in a jail with their bodies beaten and bruised with all kinds of vermin running around them with no lights and nothing. And as a result of that singing, what happened? Prison doors were opened. A jailer became a believer. A church was planted. All because two people were singing. And so I began to ask the Lord to make Pastor Ha and his 16 other colleagues begin to sing in the middle of the night. Uh, to, to fill the jails with worship. And as a result of that, that prison doors would be open either literally or figuratively. And then, of course, I thought of Paul himself in prison later on. When Paul was imprisoned, he was under house arrest for two years. What are some of the things that Paul did under house arrest? First of all, Paul prayed. There are some magnificent prayers in the New Testament, writing, which, and those were in Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. Paul prayed them all when he was in jail. <coughs> Paul had insights into Scripture. And by the way, he wrote Ephesians, and he wrote Philippians, and he wrote Colossians, and he wrote Philemon while he was in prison. He received insight from God. That became a blessing to the church today. And then Paul discipled and trained all kinds of people who were with him. And most remarkable of all, Paul got to witness to all the guards. Because, you see, Paul had appealed to Caesar, and so he had to be carefully guarded. And some scholars believe that there was a Roman soldier, a part of the crack team of Caesar's Praetorian Guard, who were literally chained to him every six hours so he wouldn't go away. Can you imagine those poor guys? They had to listen to Paul pray. They had to listen to Paul dictate Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. No wonder some of them became believers because in Philippians, Paul says, even those of Caesar's household salute you. So those were all the things that happened to Paul. And so I began to pray all those things for Pastor Ha, that he would become a man of prayer, that he would get insight into God's word and fashion sermons that would later on come and touch many, many people, that he would have the opportunity to minister to jailers and witness to them. So that was from the life of Joseph, from the life of Peter, from the life of Paul and Silas, from Paul under house arrest. <clears throat> and then I even prayed for him because I didn't know whether he'd be martyred or not. And remember Stephen the martyr? What does it say there? When the stones were thudding into his body, it says he saw heavens open and Jesus standing at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he prayed, Father, have mercy upon these people. So I prayed that should Pastor Ha be asked to pay the ultimate price, that in direct proportion to the pain and the suffering in his body, heavens would open and he would see the glory of Jesus standing and he would have grace to be able to pray for forgiveness for the people. Do you see how scripture works? Are you getting some idea of how this works? Sovereign creator and a God who has revealed in history. Now, it doesn't stop there. Then they move on. Oh, uh, by the way, <coughs> in verse 20, 27 and 28, we see yet another dimension of God. He's not only sovereign, He's not only creator, he's not only God who has revealed truth in the word, he's a God who has acted in history. Verse 27, Indeed Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Just like they rebelled against your holy servant David, now they rebelled, rebelled against your holy servant Jesus. They did just what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Just as sovereign you were over David's life, and just as the rebellion against David was in vain, the rebellion against Jesus was in vain as well because he rose from the dead. We just sang that a few moments ago. So we not only get insight to pray from the word of God, but also from the work of God. He's sovereign creator. He reveals. He's also active in history. This is one of the reasons why you need to stay aware of what God is doing in the world today. 
while the canon of scripture is closed, there is no more scripture, God has not stopped working in this world. And so as I continue to pray for Pastor Ha, I also ask myself, what is God doing in the lives of imprisoned Christians today that will also teach me how to pray for Pastor Ha? And let me just quickly mention a few of them. I came across a story of a young woman named Irina. Irina was a little girl who grew up in the city of Odessa when Russia was still under communist regime. <coughs> and she grew up to be a poet. She became a follower of Jesus. She grew up to be a poet. And the KGB arrested, as they often do, many of the culture shapers in the society. And Irina was put into jail. And this story is told by uh, Charles Colson in his book, The Body. And one of the ways Irina would resist the interrogation of the KGB, and their techniques were all meant to break people's mental resistance down, was when she was being harshly interrogated, she would compose poetry in her head. And then as soon as the interrogation was over, she would go down and write down all this poetry. So I learned that God, uh, from that, that I could pray that God would bless Pastor Ha with creativity, would preserve his sanity under interrogation, and he would eventually bless the church as a result of that. Then I heard the story about a pastor in solitary confinement. 21 days he was put into confinement all by himself. And, uh, and I'm an introvert, and I would hate that thought. If, if he was an extrovert, I can only imagine how hard that would have been for him. But when this man was released, I heard him say, uh, it was reported that one of the things he said was, I am so sad, I will now miss that deep, intimate communion I had with Jesus these last 21 days. So I began to pray that if Pastor Ha was in solitary confinement, that he would experience the reality and the presence and the sweetness of Jesus so much that he would rather remain there than even leave out. I wouldn't know how to pray this way from the word of God. I learned to pray this way from the work of God in the world. And then I heard about a Chinese pastor who was given very menial duties. That was another way in which they break down people. And he was basically assigned to the cesspools to look after all the, um, the latrines and the cleaning and stuff like that. And you can just imagine the stench in these places. And, past, and this, past, this particular Chinese pastor would sing an old hymn. Most of us don't know the hymn. I, I learned it growing up as a Christian. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy that we share as we tarry there to others must be made known. And past, this pastor testified that a cesspool had begun to smell like a garden for him because of Christ's presence. And so I began to pray that way for Pastor Ha, that should he be in those places where, where there's that physical assault upon his uh, sensitivities, that cesspools will become gardens as he prays and as he sings. And then finally, I remember reading about Pastor Richard Wumbrandt, the Polish uh, pastor. He was a preacher, and often the guards were sadistic guards who loved to beat the prisoners, but if that got reported to their boss, so they'd be in trouble. So Wumbrandt would actually make a deal with the, with the guards I will allow you to beat me if you will allow me to preach the gospel. I mean, what kind of spectacular love for Jesus does that take? I am a preacher, but I don't think I can do that. But because he did it for Wombrand, I figured I could pray that for Pastor Ha as well. So not only the word of God, but the work of God all conspired to enrich my time of prayer. And so finally they pray. Now, finally they come to a... Notice they haven't prayed about the problem at all. There's not a single Lord you know here. They talk about the sovereign God. They talk about the creator God. They talk about the God who is active in history. And the God who has revealed truth. And then after they have filled the scene with the sovereign, creator, revealer, God of history, 
Then they finally pray, now, Lord, now. Now it's time for you to act now. You acted in the time of David. You acted in the time of Jesus. Now that same God, act now. And what did they say? Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Why did they pray that? Because that's what David did in Psalm 2. David preached to these people who were raging against him because David was sure that he had been anointed king. And they say, well, Jesus has been anointed king. Jesus is the true David. Jesus is installed. And that happened, by the way, Psalm 2 was fulfilled at the resurrection. Easter Sunday, Romans chapter 1 says, He was declared to be Son of God with power at the resurrection. Psalm 2 says, Today you are my son. This day have I begotten you. So they knew that the story of David was really fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So they are on even surer ground than David goes because their King Jesus is installed in the heavenly realms. And therefore their job is to preach. Not to stop preaching, but to continue preaching. So they prayed, speak, enable your servant to speak your word with boldness. And then notice what they say, stretch out your hand to heal. Heal? What got them into trouble in the first place? They healed somebody. So basically they think, God, give us some more of the same. Because that's what you told us to do, to heal and preach in the name of Jesus. And they got on with the mission. And they performed signs and wonders and miracles in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So this is what prayer with our cliches looks like, folks. It's rooted in God's sovereignty over his global agenda. It unleashes God's creative power. It is shaped by his word. And it is informed by his work in the world. Therefore, it can be bold. It's a large-purpose, solution-centered prayer rather than a small-purpose, problem-centered, Lord-you-know kind of prayer. And this kind of praying keeps you fueled for the rest of your life. A couple of observations before I draw this message to a close. Are you beginning to get some idea of how this works? What theocentric, God-centered praying looks like rather than mere human-centered praying, which is, Lord, you know, kind of praying. <coughs> Let's go back to John. How might we pray differently in the light of a text like this? What would happen to our prayers for unemployed John and his interview tomorrow if we were to bring the sovereign God into the picture? I don't know about you, but I might. And each one of us can do this differently. And that's the beauty of this. No two prayers will be the same. Lord, you know prayers. Everybody will pray the same prayers. Because all they know is to repeat the problem back to God. But theocentric praying like this is, can be as varied and as rich as as many people that are here. Here are some thoughts that came to my mind. If I were to pray for John in that situation, the first thing I might pray is that, that John himself would be reminded of the fact that his God is sovereign over the situation. And therefore, he will not waste his time complaining, uh, irritated and angry with the people who fired him or frustrated at the people who didn't give him the jobs. Because in all of that, John will be convinced of the fact that God is absolutely sovereign. And because God is sovereign, Lord, please help John learn to, to learn to pray for the first time like he's never prayed before. That might be one way in which I would pray for John if God is sovereign. How about if I were to bring the creator God into this picture? I might pray that John would become very creative in the use of this time that he now has. Time is an incredible gift. Most of us don't have enough time. And all of a sudden, unemployment, though it has its difficulties, I don't mean to glorify unemployment if there are people here who are struggling for a job. I'm simply asking, suggesting that there's a perspective we can bring to bear upon that situation. That while he has that time, that God's creativity would enter into him. Maybe that God would be creative in helping him write resumes that are different. That 
He might start using his gifts in some new ways, that God might even open doors of new areas of interest for him, maybe explore a very different kind of career that he might never have thought of at this particular time. And that he might become creative in the way he uses his time to enrich the relationships in his life. And then how about God as revealer? I might pray that John would become a man of the word during this time. That he would learn to go every day to God's word, to get God's perspective on, on each of those failed, failed interviews, on each of those frustrating eight months, that God would give him perspective. That during that time, his marriage will be taken to a whole new level as he begins to lead his family in understanding their present situation. That he would increase as a man of compassion for other people who are unemployed, so that when he does get a job, he will become a much more generous man. These are all the things that you can pray from the fact that God is a, uh, is a revealer God. And finally, that if he's a God of history, that God will bring people into his, into his lives who have experienced this, who have walked in this situation, and who can testify to them that his God is alive today. See how, how much bigger and broader our prayer for John, unemployed John, can become if we bring God who's sovereign, God who's creator, God who's revealer, and God who's history maker into this situation. Now, one last question for that we're finished. Does this mean that if we pray this way, we'll always get the answers we want? This is where you might be surprised with my response. This is probably the single most important thing I learned about prayer, that prayer is not about getting answers. Really? Why do we pray then? I want to ask you this question. What if as a result of what you heard this morning, you were to from now on approach every single situation in your life, from the intensely personal issues, to family issues, to work issues, to church issues, to government issues, to global issues? What if you were to approach every one of those situations in your life this way? By going to a sovereign God, going to a revealer God, going to a creator God, going to a God who's active in history, and interpret your present situation in the light of this kind of God that we have. And then you prayed in those lines. What if you did that for the next 10, 15, 20, 25 years of your life? Can you imagine what kind of a person you're going to become? You will become a completely unrecognizable person because your whole being will be dominated by the fact that my God is sovereign, my God is creator, my God speaks living words to me, my God is active in history, and that is the God I'm going to bring into every situation in my life. You know what? It doesn't matter whether you get answers to the specific questions or not. You'll be getting answers to the biggest prayer that you never even prayed. God, change me. That's what prayer is all about. That's the vision that I want to capture your heart with. <coughs> now, once in a while, he does give you amazing windows into what's really happening. <coughs> I was in Southern California in 2009 on my sabbatical there, and I was preaching this one church. I normally preach in, when I'm on sabbatical with this one church. I made an exception with the, with the blessing of my elders. And I was preaching this, and I was actually teaching them this message and praying. <coughs> so on a Saturday night service. At the end of the Saturday night service, five young Vietnamese uh, kids came up. And young adults. And they said, oh, Pastor Sundar, we want to talk to you. They said, we want to let you know that Pastor Ha has been relieved. We want to let you know that he's actually pastoring a church in Seattle. And we've been in that church. And he said this. 
because all the things that you taught us today, that's exactly what happened to him in the prison. And they said on one particular occasion, we talk about the creativity of God. Apparently, the, uh, the air systems were all interconnected with large uh, ducting throughout the prison cells. And at 10 o'clock at night, after the prison guards would go to sleep, Pastor Ha would lie down and preach the gospel into one of these things. And several prisoners there became believers. That's the creativity of God. I mean, is it worthwhile engaging with a God like that? That's a great question. <coughs> Lord, I ask you for one person here today. Somebody whose heart is captured by the sheer possibility that I can make a difference in the lives of a million imprisoned brothers and sisters. That I can be responsible and an agent in your hands to distill the reality of a sovereign creator, revealer God into the lives of a hundred million Christians who are being persecuted every day. You know who that person is right now. I pray they will hear this call with great joy. Not with a burden, but with a let me at it attitude, Father. Create that kind of holy enthusiasm in that person. And then for the vast majority of people here, Lord, I pray that they will be captured by the vision of the kind of people they can become in the weeks, months, years, and decades ahead if they were to engage with this living God in this way through your word. Lord Jesus, we celebrated the fact that you are the risen God alive in us. Accomplish your purpose in us, through us, for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name. Amen. In my reading through the scriptures, uh, yesterday I was in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And three or four or five times in that passage, Moses is speaking to the people and he says, What other nation is there who has heard of God speak out of the fire living words and that's one blessing for you that you may be gripped by the unique people that you are that you have been given the privilege of hearing the voice of God speaking to you every day and that voice will engage you in a life transforming dialogue with him go in Jesus name